0: This is Stacey Harbaugh and Jonah Chester with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. State prosecutors won't be filing criminal charges in about 30 sexual assault cases that were mishandled by the Wisconsin National Guard. That decision comes after an 18-month-long investigation during which Wisconsin's Justice Department reviewed the cases. The Associated Press reports that those cases were dropped for a variety of reasons. Some had already been prosecuted. Some were due to district attorneys declining to bring charges, and in at least 12 cases, the statute of of limitations had expired. In a 2019 decision, the the Federal National Guard Bureau determined the Wisconsin Guard had mishandled the cases, prompting the DOJ's investigation.
1: And following up on a story we brought you yesterday, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Wisconsin's Republican lawmakers are planning to hire an attorney to represent Frederick Prane, that's the chair of Wisconsin's Natural Resources Board. The Republican's attorney will be taxpayer-funded. The Natural Resources Board is the governing body of the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Prane has served on the body for six years, and his term theoretically expired in May. But he's repeatedly refused to leave the board, citing a legal loophole that allows him to remain until the Republican-controlled Senate approves his successor. Prane is currently facing a lawsuit from Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call, who's asking the courts to force Prane out.
0: Prosecutors in the Kyle Rittenhouse case are asking the court to accept new video evidence that reportedly shows Rittenhouse talking about wanting to shoot people. The Associated Press reports that the footage was taken roughly two weeks before Rittenhouse killed two and injured a third during protests in Kenosha last August. The 29-second video reportedly shows Rittenhouse watching several men exit a CVS store, one of whom appeared to be armed. Rittenhouse then comments that he would like to shoot the man using his semi-automatic rifle. In a separate motion, prosecuting attorneys asked the court to compel Rittenhouse to turn over a list of donors to his legal defense fund, bail fund, or anyone who purchased free Kyle merchandise through his family's website. The prosecution argues that those contributors should be barred from serving on the case's jury jury. Rittenhouse's trial, where he'll face several charges, is set to begin November 1st. Rittenhouse and his attorneys maintain that he fired in self-defense.
1: Wisconsin's unemployment rate was unchanged for the fourth month in a row. The state's Department of Workforce Development reports that unemployment was at 3.9% last month, where it's hovered since late spring. That's well below the nationwide unemployment rate of 5.4% for July. In July 2020, Wisconsin's unemployment rate was 7.2%
0: and a group of animal rights activists were charged yesterday with stealing three beagles from an animal testing and breeding facility in Blue Mounds in 2017. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the three activists reportedly stole the dogs, collectively worth $3,600, from Richland Farms. Ridgeland Farms breeds and sells upward of 3,000 beagles annually to various medical research institutes including the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Each of the animal rights activists face up to nine years in prison with seven years of extended supervision. The 2017 Beagle Heist and the publicity around the case resulted in swift backlash against Rid- Ridgeland Farms and the surrounding commu- or by the surrounding community. In 2018, nearby Mount Horeb introduced a referendum to bar the sale, or use, of cats and dogs for animal testing. That referendum ultimately failed.
1: Madison's Overture Center is instituting a vaccine requirement for visitors. Per the new rules, visitors to the center must either provide proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test that is no more than three days old. The performing arts space is set to reopen on August 30th. The Overture Center Center joins a growing list of local music and art venues that are instituting vaccine requirements. According to the Capital Times, the Sylvie, the Majestic Theater, the Orpheum Theater, and the High Noon Saloon have implemented similar policies. In related news, Madison's musicians may have to take to the stage while masked for the foreseeable future. The county's newest mask mandate, which is in effect for all indoor spaces, makes no exception for singers and performers.
0: A renaming committee for James Madison Memorial High School has narrowed its options down to 15 contenders. The renaming committee was established earlier this summer after a former student proposed renaming the school in honor of former Wisconsin Attorney General Val Phillips. The former Memorial High student Maya Berry argued in her proposal that the school's name was inappropriate as its namesake, President James Madison, was a slave owner. The renaming committee will continue narrowing the 15 contenders down to four finalists. And the Capitol Times reports that the Madison School Board will make its final decision on the new high school's or the high school's new name.
1: The City of Madison will be hosting its first public information session on the upcoming attachment to the Town of Madison. On Halloween 2022, the Town of Madison is going to be absorbed into the cities of both Madison and Fitchburg in a process known as attachment. At that time, current residents of the town of Madison, which is a small community of several thousand people, will have a new government. The city of Madison's virtual public information meeting on the process will be Wednesday, September 15th at 6 p.m.
0: And the state's Department of Health Services reports that unvaccinated Wisconsinites are about three times more likely than their vaccinated counterparts to contract COVID-19. And those numbers come courtesy of a new addition to the DHS's online COVID-19 dashboard. The new data illustrates the pandemic's impact on vaccinated versus unvaccinated folks. And per that new data, unvaccinated people are also 10 times more likely to die from the virus. But breakthrough cases have increased over the past few months, and COVID infections amongst Wisconsin's fully vaccinated more than doubled from February through July. And now on to today's top stories.
1: Today, Dane County's new mask mandate went into effect, but the order, which is set to expire next month, is already facing a legal challenge. WORT reporter Seeger Gray has the story.
2: Dane County's indoor mask mandate went into effect today. The mandate, announced earlier this week by Public Health Madison and Dane County, requires anyone older than two to wear a face covering while indoors with people outside their household. There are a few exceptions, such as when you're eating or drinking or receiving dental work. The order is planned to remain in effect until September 16th. PHMDC Director Janelle Heinrich said in an announcement on Tuesday that the mask mandate is essential as the Delta variant is causing a new wave of cases in Wisconsin.
0: We've done it before, and
3: we can do it again. This simple step, in combination with our best tool, vaccination, will only further help keep people safe, including children under 12 that are not yet eligible for vaccine. Given just how contagious Delta is proving to be, we must employ our best tools to stop further spread.
2: The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 1,223 cases per day. Just over 50% of Wisconsin residents and 68% of Dane County residents are fully vaccinated, but PHMDC says that since vaccinated people can still spread the Delta variant to others, masking up regardless of vaccination status is important. However, the new mask mandate is already being challenged by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative law firm. Yesterday, Will filed a lawsuit to stop the order and ask the Wisconsin Supreme Court to immediately put a hold on the mandate until the case is done. Will says local health authorities like Heinrich do not have the power to issue a mask mandate, relying on a state Supreme Court decision from June, finding that Heinrich overstepped her authority by shutting down schools last fall. Dan Lennington is a deputy counsel for Will.
4: Our position in the lawsuit is that um, she doesn't have the specific power uh, to order a mask mandate because she's not been given that power by the state legislature. And so for the same reason that she doesn't have the power to close schools, she also doesn't have the power
5: to issue a mask mandate.
2: WORT reached out to PHMDC for comment on the lawsuit. In an email, a PHMDC spokesperson said, quote, We are confident that our face covering order is legal. They declined to offer further comment. The state Supreme Court has not yet indicated whether it will take the case first or whether the case will start at a lower circuit court. It has also not indicated whether it will issue an emergency injunction to put an immediate stop to the mask mandate. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Seager Gray.
1: It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: Earlier this week, former Madison East High School teacher David Crutchen pled guilty to two child pornography charges stemming from an overnight field trip in December 2019. During that trip, Crutchen placed hidden video cameras in students' hotel rooms. And alongside the criminal investigation, the Madison Metropolitan School District launched its own internal investigation into the incident. School district administrators have repeatedly refused to release the official report from that investigation, much to the frustration of local parents. Now, Isthmus, Madison's alt-monthly newspaper, has obtained that full report. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan.
1: All right. So you just published a piece on Isthmus that takes a look at a report that was uh, I don't believe it was ever really supposed to be public that details the internal investigation the Madison Metropolitan School District did into David Crutchton, the former East High teacher. Can you give us a little bit of background on this case here for those who may have forgotten who was Crutchton and what, what is the heart of this case here?
6: Well, he was just in federal court and he pled guilty to attempting to produce child pornography and transportation of a minor mm-hmm. uh, for that purpose. And well, basically what uh, we've learned in, uh, in the two years since this has happened, a little less than that, is that this Madison East High School t- teacher was a chaperone and the kind of the advisor for uh, an extracurricular club that students were on. And he was putting cameras hidden in air fresheners and alarm clocks and thermostats in the bathrooms of of students that he was in charge of and other sort of startling allegations and uh, that he's pretty much owned up to at this point uh, mm-hmm. because of the federal charges that he faces. He, he's not quite done there. He still has to be sentenced. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was obviously this huge betrayal for this teacher who, obviously, people feel differently now, but was kind of widely liked and seen as a leader at East, and a lot of people feel betrayed by that. So, uh, yes, uh, and some strange developments have happened along the (laughs) way, including how, uh, you know, the Madison School District, they promised parents after this happened that they would do a full internal investigation about... What happened on this one particular field trip that led to his, David Crutchen's arrest? Uh, and their response has not been exactly viewed well by open government advocates, but also parents.
1: Mm-hmm. Alongside the criminal investigation into question yes. that the authorities were undertaking, uh, the Madison School District launched its own internal investigation, and despite yeah, and repeated its own
6: policies were filed exactly, and,
1: yeah. and despite repeated pressing by parents and uh, other members of the media, they they repeatedly refused to release the internal report of that at all. So what what changed? How did you come by this report most recently?
6: Well, it turns out they did it, but completely by accident. <laughs> but it, let's not forget, and uh, you know, you talked to Tom Kamenick, uh on your weekly mm-hmm. transparency talks. They, the school district, had found a really good way to block. You know, this, they're a public organization. You're allowed to see internal documents. They have to be redacted under certain circumstances, but. Pretty routine for a state government agency, the Madison Police Department, state government. Everyone mm-hmm. is used to giving over records because, you know, that's how the public – those are how sunshine laws work and work and that we should all applaud open government in that regard. So, But they were saying since they hired uh, a private attorney who used to work for them to do this internal investigation that they – they could refuse to hand it over to the media or to parents and even to school board members because of attorney-client privilege. And that seems – that hasn't really been tested in court, but that seems Mm -hmm. like at the moment that that's a lawful excuse for denying records. So much to my surprise, I was investigating – I did a a submitted open records request in March but just got it back very recently – about a totally different hidden camera story involving East High School, which you should look up. It's mm-hmm. you forgive people for being confused with all these hidden camera stories out of East High School, but it wasn't related to David Crutchin, But within it was this twelve-page re- review, uh, this uh, this internal do- or this independent uh, review of the field trip that had been promised and performed and completed that they refused to release, and all of a sudden it shows up as part of. It was included with all these other records. And uh, since my story published yesterday, we found out that uh, the district did it by accident. They wouldn't tell me that, but they told the State Journal. So what
1: were the major findings from that report, which was I, I read it before we sat down. It's unredacted. It's pretty much all out there. Yeah. What were the major findings that we didn't know before that that kind of revealed now?
6: Well, I think a lot of it was it confirmed the worst fears of parents that there wasn't a thorough investigation about. Obviously, when someone is committing these felony level Mm -hmm. heinous sex crimes, what can a school district do to protect students? Well, there was another chaperone on this trip. There was mandatory reporting laws, and it was supposed to be a review of how the district handled this, uh, for better or worse. Well, the report, you know, they released a two-page summary earlier, and it wasn't all that different from that, but it did sort of explain the reasoning why. So one troubling aspect of it was this private attorney said that, hey, based on the facts that she reviewed and that there wasn't any district employees, they didn't need to follow child mandatory reporting laws. Like if people like teachers and nurses and they have to report child abuse when they see it. District employees didn't have to follow those rules because under uh, a definition that, you know, she put out there in the report, you know, what Crushing did with the hidden cameras and hotel bathrooms of students didn't fit the child abuse. Mm. So they didn't have to follow mandatory reporting laws because there was nothing essentially to report, which, you know, in hindsight seems a little crass in considering he's going to be a sex offender for the rest of his life and maybe serve... He's up for six to 30 years in federal prison. You know, I maybe kind of see why they didn't want to put it out there. But what really I think parents were upset about is that, you know, it's just clear that this was a very limited review of how the school district handles field trips and, and all these situations. And they didn't never really took a hard look at it. They never interviewed any students and that it was or parents and that was very distressing to the people at East High School who, you know, had students who were victims here. So yeah, I don't I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, it was weird that they denied it for so long and that angered people and it angered people even more when it came out.
1: Hmm. Now, as part of the report, uh, the the author makes a few recommendations for policy changes. Yeah at mmsd have has there been any follow-through on those there since is the report? so Does there were should?
6: some things like hey maybe you need to update your forms a little bit for this your extended field trip policy maybe you need to like articulate when you know kids are on an extended uh, hotel situation that you know the chaperone doesn't have a key to every single room like david crutchin did just not anything that like totally different but at mm. least a Not sweeping overhauls, just... Some probably very common sense updating, right? And the superintendent now, who wasn't the superintendent kind of when this all happened in 2019, Dr. Jenkins, uh, you know, he promised students in October that they would, the district would, you know, get these policies updated, and that hasn't happened either.
1: Hmm. So just to recap, Madison Metro School District launches this internal investigation they complete the internal investigation, refuse to release it to parents. Presumably, this internal investigation was conducted with the idea of and making sure this doesn't happen in the future. And so far, they have implemented none of the precautionary measures that internal report recommended to prevent this from happening in the future. Pretty is that much, a good read?
6: Pretty much, yes. No, they haven't. Yeah, and it's perplexing. And, you know, there is pending litigation, and I think the school district is worried about that. Mm-hmm. The... It's very hard to say because that it hasn't really been made public, and I don't think anything has been filed officially. But a lot of parents told me, and a lot of other people who have been following this closely, it sure seems like they care more about a potential lawsuit and covering their butts than actually protecting students. Mm.
1: Talk to me more about how the parents you've spoken with both for this story and in prior stories yeah. have reacted to the the report's full release.
6: Well, they well, it, like I said, it really confirmed their worst fears that there really wasn't much of an investigation to begin with. And when and this uh internal investigation that looked into district policies was about one trip, we have since learned that there were multiple trips that David Crutchin put hidden cameras in the hotel rooms of of his students in you know, he's admitted in federal court now uh, that, you know, his purposes and motives for doing that weren't exactly pure.
1: Mm. Dylan, thanks so much for joining me today. Before we wrap up here, is there anything else about the report or your investigation that you'd like to float to the surface that we haven't quite touched on here?
6: Well, this, uh, I, it's been a lesson in uh, the how much people care about open government and getting, mm. you know, really knowing the truth about things and how efforts to thwart that, even if they're just perceptions you know, it make a big difference because it's these parents are just sort of I don't think they necessarily blame the district administration for what happened but their response to what happened because of David Crutchin they have been deeply disappointed by and they they're sort of baffled that they would be treated like that
1: because
6: hmm. it because from their perspective it seems like the district wants to cover its butts but you know actually protecting their kids and doing everything you can to make sure something like this never happens again, you know, that doesn't seem to be their top priority.
1: All right. I've been joined in the studio by Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan. You can find his full write-up online at Isthmus.com. And is it also going to be in the September issue of Isthmus? Yeah, and I'm going to be
6: updating it. I'm hoping to talk, you know, really, now that the district will talk to me again, they gave me the cold shoulder this time but maybe we'll get some response from the district and you know there's a lot of staff turnover in the district generally and in these high school and we'll see if this you know coming semester they can really turn a turn a corner on all this we will have to wait and see dylan thanks so much for joining me
1: today thank you john you're listening to handcrafted local news here on wort stay with us we've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show
0: we'll look at local refugee resettlement efforts Transparency Talk gives us an open rep, open government masterclass and Radio Chipstone goes antique shopping.
1: But now we're going to take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
7: Are you ready for Radio Roulette? WORT's news department has many volunteer positions to fill. So step right up to the radio roulette wheel and see what you could win with a spin. 24 Black wins you engineering for a public affair on Fridays from 1 to 2 p.m. 18 Red will get you Wednesdays 11.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. for a public affair and the syndicated show Leathers and Politics. Look at that! Seven Red will win you the engineer position for Thursdays, 11.30 a.m. until 2 p.m. for a public affair and the syndicated show, Letters and Politics. 13 Black will get you Thursdays, 7.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. You will engineer and help broadcast radio literature. On-air opportunities may be present as well. And Lucky Double Zero will land you on Mondays, 5.30 to 7 p.m. as a co-host for the local evening news. Wow! (laughs) The news department is also looking for reporters, feature producers, and kiosk readers. Applicants must be fully vaccinated with a one-year commitment. We will provide all the free training you need. Engineers should have some familiarity with computers and willingness to work collaboratively. If you're interested in any of these prizes, contact Adrian Ranney at 608-321-9583 or email Adrian. that's A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, at wortfm.org. For more information on these engineer opportunities, visit the wortfm.org website and click on the How to Help tab. View current volunteer opportunities.
1: The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Jonah Chester, here with my co-host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this week, Afghanistan returned to Taliban control for the first time in two decades. While the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan, images, excuse me, images and videos ricocheted across the web of refugees attempting to flee the country. Now, some of those refugees may be coming to Wisconsin. WORT feature contributor Paul Herman takes us from here.
8: In the aftermath of the taliban seizing control of afghanistan many refugees are scrambling to get out of the country by any means necessary online crowdsourced resources are springing up the mit technology review reports that many relief organizations are using google forms whatsapp and private social media groups as a result of the rapidly evolving situation wisconsin is gearing up to take refugees as well the wisconsin state journal reports that fort mccoy a u.s army installation by sparta May accept an unknown number of refugees, and in Dane County, one organization is preparing for refugee resettlement. Jewish Social Services is a Dane County nonprofit that has been around for 40 years. They provide Dane County residents with short-term advocacy, long-term case management, and immigration legal services. I spoke with Executive Director Don Bernay to find out more about how they are preparing for Afghan refugees and how the digital world has shaped the refugee resettlement program. What work do you provide for refugee resettlement?
3: So for the past four and a half or five years, we have been doing refugee resettlement here in Dane County. Um, We are currently the only resettlement agency uh, in Dane County and we start work even before a family arrives in Madison We are responsible for finding them an appropriate place to live, preferably someplace on a bus line. We find the apartment. We get it set up with furniture and household goods. We then um, also make sure that the kitchen is fully stocked with a full refrigerator and pantry for at least a week. And then we pick the family up at the airport and provide them a culturally appropriate meal. And then after that, for the next 90 days, we help shepherd them through enrolling in different benefit programs, if they have children, enrolling them in school, bringing them, making sure they are seen by a medical and dental professional, Um, and then eventually enrolling children in school or the adults in ESL and helping them find employment.
8: You mentioned uh, so this began uh, four or five years ago, you said?
3: Yes, we did it earlier in the 1980s and 1990s until 2002. And then we started at the very end of 2016 um, doing resettlement again.
8: What brought you to do those services again?
3: uh actually it was the tweet that was sent out around the world of the little boy from syria who had died um and was on the beach in turkey and we received a number of phone calls at that point an email saying what we know you used to do resettlement what are you going to do now and originally we said well nothing we're in madison um But as part of our values, um, welcoming the stranger is actually an official one of our values. And we knew it was the right thing to do.
8: Have you started receiving Afghan refugees?
3: Monday was when the last flight took off from Mm. Kabul. Um, We haven't received anyone since then. That being said, in the last two months, we have resettled 14 family members of SIVs. Normally, a refugee, become you become a refugee by being from one country, you have been displaced from your home, and you're living in a second country. And then when you come to the United States, which is your third country, then you are considered a refugee. SIVs are people with the special immigrant visa status, and these are people who have worked For the U.S. military or U.S. military contractor, either from Afghanistan or Iraq, so you can only be from those two countries to have this SIV status. The form this week, if you had your SIV status you could buy yourself a plane ticket and come to the United States and then you were treated as a refugee and you have all the benefits of being a refugee, but you had that choice. We're not sure if that's still going to happen because the numbers are going to be so large that there are going to be not many compute communities who just cannot take in everyone who necessarily wants to move there.
8: Is this concurrently happening, uh, the the situation in Afghanistan? Are you anticipating a lot more refugees from other uh, countries as well?
3: I really hope that no other country falls into as deep a crisis as quickly as Afghanistan has in the last several days. I don't know that our country is prepared to take that many more refugees right now and Unfortunately, over the past five years, a significant number of organizations actually closed up shop and are no longer doing refugee resettlement work because the numbers dropped so dramatically during the um, Trump administration for the number of refugees who are allowed to come into the United States. So that is making it much harder right now to quickly process people coming in. So besides affiliates disappearing in the United States, the number of staff abroad doing this work, working for the federal government, significantly shrunk. So there's, even before this new crisis in Afghanistan, there's already an h- enormous backlog. Set, we've only resettled 6,700 people in the la- almost a year now, and we're expecting something like at least 22,000 refugees coming in just from Afghanistan in the very near future.
8: You already mentioned how social media helped motivate your organization with the viral photo of the Syrian refugee child. Have you felt that the internet and social media have improved refugee resettlement uh, for awareness and tools?
3: For the most part, it has been a really good thing for us. It's allowed us to share information about things that we might need either for an individual family or volunteer support that we might need for a specific event that we have. It also allows us to educate people about what's happening. That's a really good thing about social media. On the flip side, especially right now, is people are getting so excited and sharing information without context and um, we're actually getting overwhelmed. The example that's come up quite recently is we had an infographic that we put together a number of weeks ago before the crisis as it's currently ensuing was happening. Well, it's recently been getting shared on Facebook and something like three or 4,000 people have seen it, and in the blurb under the infographic, it says, if you want something like, if you want a refugee uh, staying in your basement, email, and it's the name and email address of our volunteer coordinator. That's a little overwhelming for him right now. And so we've had to actually send out additional information saying, we really want your help, but hold on, we don't even have anyone arriving yet.
8: Yeah, so what do you recommend for people who are eager to help out in Madison?
3: I've got a couple of ideas on that. One, you can always donate money either to Jewish social services or other organizations that work do work with refugees. So... Um, You can go to Open Doors for Refugees website, they have a list of items that they are always in need of collecting for new families, and I expect that that list is going to continue to grow. Um, I would also, I mean, right now we are at capacity with volunteers, although that's not going to be a forever thing. You can always keep coming back to our website to see if we are looking for additional volunteers, because at some point soon we will be ready for that. Um, And there are plenty of other organizations that we partner with that we would encourage you to volunteer with. Literacy Network is a great example. And this is just my little plug that I like to say all the time now is please encourage this administration to um, open the doors so that more refugees can come to the United States. Sending letters, et cetera, to the administration is always a good thing.
8: Uh, again, I've been speaking with Don Bernay, the Executive Director of Jewish Social Services. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. If you wish to learn more about Jewish Social Services, you can visit their website at jssmadison.org. They are also on Facebook and Instagram. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Paul Herman.
0: Every other Thursday, our producer, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government. And a quick note, as always, before we begin, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice. So if you have difficulty with open records or open government, seek an attorney's assistance.
1: It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as always, by our open government wizard, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project, Tom Kamenek. Tom, thanks as always for joining me for this uh, most uh, celebratory of episodes. Tom, tell our listeners why this episode is a big deal in particular.
9: Happy anniversary, Jonah.
1: Happy anniversary, Tom. That's right. We started this feature a little uh, around a year ago, this time last August. Uh, Let's see, 52 weeks in a year. So we've done this series pretty regularly every other week. So that's 26 episodes, give or take some time off for holidays. We're about 26 episodes into this feature series, and we've covered a lot of ground in the past year. So we're going to take this episode To look back from a a year-in-review perspective, August to August, what's happened in the past year? Let's flash back. Tom, take me from there. Let's look back to our first show. How far have we come?
9: Man, this started as, hey, let's come on in eight minutes. We'll talk about a little bit of open records and open meeting stuff. And it'll be a nice little introduction for people. But, you know, I'm kind of a teacher at heart, so a nice little introduction turns into let's make this a deep dive course and and do this on a regular basis. It's been great. So, you know, we started with the basics of records and meetings laws. We moved on to advanced topics like exemptions and fees and delays. Then we talked about specific cases too, what the Wisconsin Transparency Project has done, the victories we've had, a occasional defeat for transparency here, not too many of those, thankfully. And boy, we've touched on a lot of current events, haven't we?
1: Indeed, we have from uh, the UW's attempts to conceal plans to return to a Big Ten fall football season. The stuff happened at the state legislature. We've covered a lot. Not only have we covered a lot on this feature series in particular, we're also approaching the two-year anniversary for the Wisconsin Transparency Project. So, Tom... Congrats on approaching your, your two year legal birthday. I don't know what to call it.
9: <laughs> well, this has been an experiment, and so far it hasn't failed. I'm still in business, so it, it appears to be working and will continue for the foreseeable future, which is great. That's exactly what I wanted. You know, I started with this goal. This was September of 2019. I left my longtime firm, branch out of my own. I wanted to dramatically increase the enforcement action for records and meetings violations around the state. And my my working theory was, these people aren't getting sued often enough, aren't getting challenged often enough, and they think they can get away with things. They don't have anybody keeping them honest. So I figured, why don't I do that? So in that time period, i filed or joined 18 lawsuits. Eight of those we won, two of them we have lost. Eight of those are still pending with very high hopes for them. But aside from lawsuits, we've sent out over 90 letters now demanding the release of records or the reduction in fees or unredacting information. Letters have been uh, highly successful and get really good responses. because I think a lot of custodians around the state now know who I am and what the Wisconsin Transparency Project is, and they know they will get sued if they're not behaving themselves.
1: Are there any uh, particular victories you've had over the past two years that you'd like to highlight today?
9: Yeah, there's a couple that really moved the needle uh, for the benefit of transparency in the state. One was was John Doe versus the Madison Metropolitan School District. And as you might be able to tell from the title of the lawsuit, John Doe, this was an anonymous record requester. And the law says that you do not have to identify yourself when you're making a record request. But the Madison School District said, well, we're not going to turn these records over to you because you might be somebody who is a crazy person who wants to do something awful with this information. And we filed a lawsuit saying, no, you can't do that. Judge agreed, lawsuit settled, they turned over the records, that was done. That's a good one. Another one was a a statewide lawsuit. This is WITI, uh, more commonly known as Fox 6 News out of Milwaukee versus Evers, that is Governor Evers. And that case involved the right to request all emails without having to provide search terms. So I wanna remind people that the law says you have to have either a subject matter limitation for your request or a time limitation to your request. So you can say, I want a week of your emails, all of them, no keywords, no subjects. I just wanna see who you've been conversing with and what you've been talking about. So, Tom, while we're looking back to the
1: past, let's look ahead to the future. Uh, what What's next? What's up for you next? Anything interesting you're working on at the moment?
9: Well, I just talked about a court of appeals case, but we are going to the Supreme Court for the first time at the Wisconsin Transparency Project.
1: Hooray! I'll have to put in applause uh, sound effects in there <laughs> to celebrate because my I'm cheers good. alone, my cheers alone, are not enough to celebrate that.
9: So, this Wisconsin Supreme Court just took the WMC versus Evers case. So, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, they're trying to stop the release of lists of businesses that were identified uh, as having two or more people who had COVID or who had close contacts with people who had COVID. So, you, you don't really know for sure when you're looking at these lists. Uh, so, they sued to stop the release of that. And we interviewed intervened in the lawsuit on behalf of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel trying to get these records. And we're arguing that not only is it not illegal or or problematic to release these records, groups like WMC shouldn't be able to sue to stop the release of records. There's a law saying that the only people that can sue to stop records are public employees in some very narrow circumstances, and those don't fit here. There's also another case that might make it to the Supreme Court, we're still pending a decision whether or not the court will take it. That one comes from up north, we do work around the state and uh, the majority of Rhinelander's city council members signed a letter saying, dear Mr. Council President, we think you suck and you uh, should resign. That's the gist of it, it's not a quote, but that was the the whole whole idea of the letter. And they said, well, hey, that that wasn't a meeting, it wasn't a walking quorum, this wasn't an official action, this was just informal action we took. And and, um, courts have agreed with that so far, but we're arguing, hey, you can't avoid taking formal action by doing it informally. That's the whole point of the meetings law, that when you do stuff, you have to do it in a meeting, not just off to the side where nobody can see what's happening.
1: Indeed, what is the legal viability of uh, secretly convening to tell somebody they suck? I can't wait for the outcome of that one. Well, Tom, I, I wish you the best in the future and looking forward to the future transparency talk segments as we enter this, our second year of talking about open government and shining a light on issues that deserve public inspection. And I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project, Tom, thanks as always and a uh, happy 1 year anniversary.
9: It's been a great year. Happy anniversary, Jonah, and remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. It's gonna be a
7: bright, bright,
0: bright sunshine day. It's 6:51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Do any of you remember a place called J. Taylor's? It was a shop slash cabinet of curiosities on North Carroll Street, across from the state capitol. Closed years ago, it was the kind of place where you could buy badger memorabilia, dead stuffed animals, and various antiques. John Taylor, collector and proprietor, was known for two things, his love of antiques and his baby blue Vespa. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields takes us back to a time when Jay Taylor's was open for business.
5: It's a bright morning in Madison, and I'm standing across the street from the state capitol, outside of Jay Taylor's Antiquities, Notable Books, and Rare Maps. The storefront windows look as if they were transported from a time when young men called themselves great hunters and traveled the world killing animals. I'm not kidding. There's a stuffed lion in the window with a price tag on her paw. I'm not alone. There's a young couple peering at a boar's head. It's above the lion and chatting about something that I'm sure was none of my business until now. Arlen Calvin and his partner, Melissa Donahue, are here looking for answers. Calvin says he lost his parents and grandparents at a young age and doesn't know much about them A clue rests in a white plastic bag inside Donahue's purse. I don't really have nobody
10: left, so I'm just, you know, just grabbing things and see what it is, you know, and trying to get some history on it. You know, as we go along and try to move, a lot of stuff get lost, and we're trying to find different pictures and stuff like that to see what it is, and, you know, we're just gonna go one day at a time at it, all.
5: So. so you're reconstructing your family history through objects.
10: Trying to, that's exactly what we're trying to do, you know, and it's really hard because we can't, can't afford to go back to this family tree, which I would like to do to say, you know, where did I come from? You know, where are my ancestors? You know, we can't do that. So yeah, I think you hit it right on the head to say, what are these type of items to give me some sort of clue, you know, what it is and where we come from and that type of thing, so.
5: The J and J Taylor stands for John. He arrives on a soft blue and gray vintage Vespa. I can see his smile even before he removes his helmet. He apologizes for being a bit late as he rushes us through the door. The place smells of wood oil, citrus, metal, and old textiles. All of us remove our jackets as we walk past heavy wooden cabinets filled with stuff seen in old movies and in our dreams. All of us eager to know what's in the bag.
4: So tell me about this. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's odd.
10: Yeah, so my grandmother had it. You uh-huh. know. I don't know where she got it from. It was in, you know, she passed away. And, you know, we're going through her stuff, and, you know, this is something that would seem odd to me once again, you know. um, We just wanted to see what it is, and I don't want to know the history behind it because I don't think you know that much. I just don't know. And I'm not
4: trying to sell anything no, like that. I know. just want to know. You know, this used to be a rosary, mm-hmm. so there was a cross on it. And it's made from, uh, from resin, so it's cast. It's also cast in a, uh, in a form.
5: The rosary is the color of cream and about three feet long. Each bead is what, an inch or so in diameter? It's big, heavy. Taylor uses all of his senses when working with the object, weighing and staring at each bead as he turns them in his hands. He rubs them down his face and brings his fingers to his nose. Then he turns it over, scratching a small corner while holding it to his ear. And uh, so, how long ago
4: did your grandmother die? I mean, I don't, was she a religious
5: person? It's got to be.
7: Quinn is nine.
10: I know she was 74. Yeah. Was she religious? I think, yeah. I mean, she was. Yeah, her and my mom was very religious. Catholic? I don't know, I'll be honest with you.
4: Okay, because this would be. I don't know the number of beads, but um, but I mean we could pull out a rosary and look at it. But that that's what this was. Mm. It was a rosary. It the cross at some point um, fell off. So do you have siblings?
10: Um, Yeah. Brothers,
4: sisters. Yep. Yeah. And uh, how soon did they get into the door after she died? I mean, you know, people kind of do that. They sort of. Go to the estate.
10: Um, it, it it was nothing like that. I mean, we okay. It was she just had a a, a um, luggage basically. and That was her life, you know. Yeah. You know, that's how it was back in the day. I oh, guess sure. everything goes in there, so that's what it was. And and we just was just going through it. And my sister was like, you know, here is this. I'm like, what is that? And then she was like, I don't know what this is, and we don't know what sure. it is. I said, I think we know somebody who probably knows yeah. what this is. <laughs> so, does, she, does she have paper or anything in it? Nothing like that. Nothing. It was just something in, a, in a, like a blanket inside the luggage. Right. So that's, that's all it was. Did she travel? No. no. She's from Mississippi. Yeah,
5: from okay. like the deep south. Yeah, okay. Taylor says with the cross, the rosary could be worth 100 to $150. Without it, the value drops to less than half.
4: What I would say is just hold on to it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, take a picture of the material, and really just feel it and study it, and kind of make sure that you really understand that. So there's a book on this. There's some history
10: behind this. I mean, the reason why well, somebody well, would...
4: well, this is a Madonna, and, and the excuse, I'm sorry to uh, interrupt you. And these are, I'm assuming that these are facials, mm-hmm. but but they're you know they're kind of odd. Actually, it might be roses. Mm. Rosary, roses. Mm-hmm. Or it could be Jesus, you know, with his head mm. sort of turning. That's what yeah, that's it is. That's what it looks like. Yeah, that's wow. what it with is. His head tilted. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, I think this would have, have been for someone who was very religious. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't think it's been moved around too often or too much because the wear.
0: I have a feeling she kept it tucked away.
4: Yeah. So this was probably a gift to her for someone. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have been something. So does it need cleaning? Is there where you just don't touch don't it? it, oh. it. Mm, okay. all right. I, w- I wouldn't. I'd say turn it into a little bit of a project. And the value, you know, will go up. Because it's, you know, it's a It's a pretty thing. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's
5: more for, it's an object. So that's the deal. Okay. Thank you. If Donahue got the a rosary, Calvin said, He's made his peace with not knowing much of his family history. He says all he can do now is make sure to leave his children, not only the things from his past, but also the stories to go along with them. For W O I'm Jennifer Fields. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Seeker Gray. Special thanks to feature contributors Jennifer Fields, Tom Kamenick, and Paul Herman. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Jonah Chester produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh.
1: And I'm your host, Jonah Chester. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your pods. Up next, it's the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.
3: with me. W-O-R-T. Madison.